Welcome to the Dialectic by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the Rajput. I'm Glenn Carl, the Wasp. So, Glenn, in this podcast, uh, we are following up on our previous one. We discussed the two fateful decisions of the George W. Bush administration in 2001 and 2003 to go to war against Afghanistan and Iran. Sorry, and Iraq, I apologize. So the two decisions to go to war against Afghanistan and Iraq, um, one of course- well, Iran figures into the story exactly, in, in exactly. Uh, ways even greater than most people realize, certainly. Ex- exactly, so a Freudian slip, I suppose. So there were consequences to those decisions, to the decision uh, to have a global war on terror, to the decision to get rid of Saddam in Iraq. And let's dive in and let's do a deep dive about the consequences of those decisions of 2001 and 2003. Right. Well, so... What did we find um, uh, in our last session? And, and really, really briefly, because I won't, you know, repeat the whole thing. There, there was not just a threat. There was a um, an ongoing um, danger of uh, terrorist jihadist, Islamically inspired uh, terrorism of going back to the 1970s, from the, the U.S. perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we discussed 1972 was, in Munich and uh, how the uh, right. Palestinian oh, right. Liberation point, Authority 70, yes, killed all the Israeli when athletes. The, uh, when they killed the Israeli athletes, that was in Munich in 1972. 76 Olympics were in uh, Montreal, and then eight, 1980 Olympics were in Moscow. And those are the Olympics that didn't occur as far as the West is concerned because the Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan, which is why it's relevant to this story, which led to um, the U.S. support of the Mujahideen. Uh, and then in the view of um, of many, it became sort of a conventional interpretation, certainly by critics of the United States, uh, that the jihadism, uh, Al-Qaeda and, and similar kind of uh, attacks worldwide were the consequence if not of the U.S. support for the Mujahideen in Pakistan fighting and Afghanistan fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. That is a, a frankly erroneous, no, let me use stronger English. It is it is wrong to uh, to make that assertion. Um, in fact, the KGB, the Russian intelligence service has done that for decades as a way to tar the United States uh, and exculpate itself a little bit for its invasion of Afghanistan. But that was the the reality was there there were people being killed regularly, planes being hijacked, people being kidnapped by Islamic um, terrorists. The view was that it was state sponsored from the 1970s on and and by the United States. That was the view. And there was truth to that. Libya did sponsor terrorism. Iran did sponsor terrorism. And what I didn't mention, Pakistan sponsored terrorism. Pakistan sponsored terrorism is that the Soviet Union sponsored terrorism, which they continue to deny, of course, but they did. They but hang on they, a moment. Uh, hang on a moment. In in some ways, uh, in the Cold War, nobody was squeaky clean. Uh, the U.S. Uh, was also sponsoring all kinds of uh, dodgy regimes in Latin America who were using terror as an instrument of state policy. 
Oh, I would argue it's a that's a horse of a very different color. Okay. Um, the U.S. Is certainly engaged in covert action and overthrew governments yeah. and supported insurgents, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, sponsoring terrorism, terrorist groups that that kidnapped uh, or assassinated never. The, in fact, so human rights successes by by unjust regimes, yes. Backing, let's say, jihadis uh, who fought for the Mujahideen against the Soviets, yes. And of course, you had massive Saudi money that came in. But terrorism as we know it, no. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Literally, one of my first assignments was uh, I took my oath uh, of office um, to become an officer. And at the time, I was an officer candidate. I was not actually, I had not yet been certified as a as a as an officer i was a, like a lieutenant junior grade kind of rank uh was on um the lebanon desk and then also on the counterterrorism group in the in the agency and one of my first assignments this is relevant to our larger story was the united states had been accused at that time we were supporting the contras that were a um uh, a nicaraguan group opposing the sandinista government which was marxist yeah. Uh, President Reagan's view was that there we can't let communists get an inroad into the Americas, and this is very controversial. But that was the, that was the position. So the United States was supporting the Contras, and that is when and you the had Contras, the Iran Contra affair. Exactly, and the which is a convoluted tale worthy of its own podcast. But but the reason I mention this right now is that the Contras were accused, um, as well as um, uh, groups in El Salvador that the uh, CIA was uh, supporting of uh, garroting uh, people, which is to take a piano wire and strangle yeah. oh, a person. Look, the it. SAS did that in World um, War Two. Yeah, it's it's a well, all death I guess is horrible, yeah. but this is a, a pretty horrible way of death. So the CIA was accused of that, and and my first assignment was to find out. Uh, the facts. I was hardly the only one, but that was my doing that. But that was was to find out the facts to to be able to show um, our congressional oversight seers that we did not do that. Not only do we not garrote anyone, but we did not uh, train people or encourage people uh, indirectly encourage people to do that. And in fact, we the CIA. Uh, did its level best to stop that sort of activity from occurring. That's the truth. Uh, it's still not believed, but it's the truth. I, I, so basically, I know the chaps you supported the, get the, did the garroting on their own, their own initiative. That's right. Okay. And then we were we we had to completely stop contact with them, and when uh, because any lethal uh, activity at all uh, was against the law, and the CIA really does not uh, break the law. Uh, individuals in the CIA have and do, but the CIA as an institution really doesn't. But this is a different tale. The the reason I mention this is just to talk about um, support for terrorism, which the U.S. has never done, but the Soviet Union did. And it's relevant because that's a state sponsor I didn't mention in our last session, which was central to shaping the worldview of the neoconservatives, and, and not only them, about the nature of terrorism. Thus, the view on in 2001 was predominantly that uh, terrorism came from 
uh, had a state sponsor behind it, behind the group or the individual. That was no longer true at that point. That was a, a dated uh, position. That's what was used in part to justify the invasion of Iraq. But as, as I discussed, it was never really true about, uh, about the Saddam regime. The one accusation that was the most accurate in, in that, from that position was that Saddam had said that he would pay pensions to any martyrs, any uh, shaheed, I think, I forget the word. Yeah, shaheed. Um, shaheeds who mm -hmm. had conducted um, uh, operations against Israel. Now, the operations against Israel were either by Hezbollah or Hamas or others uh, earlier on, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, killing Israelis. And he said, you know, because they're, they're freedom fighters, he would provide a pension. That was taken as proof that Saddam Hussein was supporting, sponsoring state-sponsored terrorism. So that's how, that was the justification for Iraq. Fine. I, I won't carry on with that, but the, no, we covered this, this in our last, Soviet point in our was last important. Uh, episode right. as to how this uh, uh, road from Afghanistan to Iraq was traversed and how people conf conflated the two who were disparate right. entities. Uh, the two uh, regimes were completely disparate entities who were natural enemies. Uh, as as one, and they all lumped it together uh, in the yes. global war on terror, and so we've That's covered that point. ground. And, and so this time, let's something else that an important point yeah. that you raised, which I hadn't touched on, is you talked about the Pakistani um, yes. supported terrorism, and then the 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 uh, spill out, we'll call it, of uh, jihadism from the Afghan war uh, globally. Yeah, uh, so often blaming the United States for this. The fact is, yes, the United States gave, I, I don't remember now the figure, but billions of dollars of aid to the Mujahideen. But the way that happened was the Pakistanis said, we will allow you, the CIA, you, the United States, to support the Mujahideen. But everything, every penny, or uh, what's the currency in Pakistan? Yeah. I forget. Yeah. <laughs> pesa, every pesa. And the rupee, pesa, 100 every pesa rupee. is a rupee. Every pesa or rupee mm -hmm. uh, and every bullet uh, you give to us, the Pakistani government, meaning the, the uh, Pakistani intelligence service. And we Inter-services intelligence the, the, for our listeners, ISI, which is a part of the Israeli, of the Pakistani army, which is uh, an institution within an institution. And the ISI is extraordinarily powerful and it has historically conducted operations, not only in Afghanistan, but also India. And some of the money and some of the resources that Glenn is talking about that went to support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan were diverted against India, both in Punjab and later in Kashmir. Right, because the, the CIA um, could not ever directly give anything to um, a Mujahideen group. It all had all had to go through the hands and the control of the Pakistanis, and so. In that sense, resources from the United States did uh, sometimes go to terrorists, yeah. but not at our instigation or our intention and against our our uh, strongly stated wishes and our efforts. Yeah. So fine. So that ends up with the U.S. as as I talked about 
invading uh, Afghanistan to destroy Al Qaeda, which had had destroyed, had attacked the United States and New York and Washington and around the world. There, I won't go through the list of attacks, but they were they were numerous. And then very quickly invading Iraq for the reasons that I discussed before. So what were what you know, in, in military terms and narrow tactical senses, each of them was a triumph, which is not a surprise since one of the governments and countries was a seventh century government and the other one was um, a, what, what, how can you characterize Saddam Hussein? A 1970s Baathist socialist regime, but really it was a bunch of uh, uh, people from Tikrit, a bunch of a family of Tikrit, uh, quite similar to the Assad family, you know, who are Alevis, of course, who basically had their thuggish rule um, uh, over, over, you know, over a very um, diverse land. So they were basically yeah, gassing. No, no tear the... should ever be shed yeah. for Saddam Hussein. Yeah. He was a, yeah. an assassin and a murderer yeah. and a sociopath. No, he was using chemical uh, weapons against the Kurds and 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 gassing the uh, Marsh Arabs. Uh, this, you know, yeah. he was basically a Sunni leader in 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 a country with a lot of Shias. Yeah, you know, he 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 literally came to influence and power because he was, as a junior officer in the military, a thug and a an assassin and a murderer, and that you know put him in good good favor with, with uh, some of his uh, then superiors and uh, terrorized others, and he eventually seized power. So, what happened once the U.S. invaded militarily? In both cases, the U.S. Uh, very quickly. Um, Conquered the uh, the enemy and and occupied each country. the The problem once again in Iraq was the Bush administration's intention was contradictory, but uh, nation building was not the, the intention. And explicitly, uh, the Bush administration wished to avoid that, which is a sort of benighted position because once you own a country uh, and you feel that to leave will leave a vacuum that will only bring bad things and and destroy the purpose of the uh, invasion in the first place, then you're stuck. And so you can only attempt to nation build, even if it is uh, a quixotic enterprise as it is. And that's what uh, the U.S. found itself in, and it made a, a number of grievous errors, which are secondary to our story. In, it made grievous errors in Iraq by alienating the former power structure entirely and not having one that would replace it, and, and frankly, not realizing, not realizing, this will seem unbelievable, that uh, there is a fundamental difference and uh, intense rivalry and often hatred between Sunni Muslims, Sunni, Sunni Muslims, and Shia. Uh, Sunni Muslims and Shia uh, Muslims, and that the hitherto ruling um, faction, the Saddam Hussein government, was Sunni, which was his uh, minority, and in Iraq. So as soon as they lost power, they feared uh, reprisals uh, with justification from the now ascendant Shia. And the Shia who had been so hideously treated by Saddam's regime um, sometimes couldn't restrain themselves from exacting some payback. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there, there are interviews I've seen uh, 
in many documentaries of uh, Shias and Sunnis talking about uh, the ethnic violence that erupted in the aftermath of uh, uh, the U.S. takeover. And literally, there were gangs uh, using power drills to drill holes into people's heads. It was absolutely yeah. horrific. And uh, what uh, Paul Bremer did was, in my view, almost criminal. He disbanded the Paul teachers. Paul Bremer was the, essentially the governor, the, exactly. the military governor, the proconsul, yeah. appointed by President Bush yeah. to uh, George be w. a civ Bush, civilian Bush leader of Iraq, the provisional yeah. government of Iraq. Yeah, so he disbanded firefighters, teachers, uh, uh, policemen. He basically destroyed the edifice of the state because anyone associated with the Ba'ath Party had to leave. What he didn't understand was that in one-party states uh, such as China, such as the Soviet Union, such as, of course, Iraq as it was, everyone had to join the Ba'athist Party to get a job. And they weren't really necessarily loyal members of the Ba'athist Party. So instead of getting rid of the elite, he disbanded the entire apparatus of the state and what ensued was complete chaos because now it, you it, literally yeah now you didn't have schools yes. you didn't have hospitals the disarmed you the did, military yeah you, you didn't have a police force you didn't have firefighters uh, it's extraordinarily breathtaking how incompetent and frankly illiterate he was when it came to the grand situation and and all of these now um disarmed disaffected frightened people now subject to the revenge of the other half of Iraq, which uh, they had been oppressing, uh, had literally no means of support. Not only could they not defend themselves, were no longer lords of the manor, um, but they were also um, at risk of starvation. Yeah, so and, what was the and they, they ended up becoming the Islamic State, uh, but we are jumping that, the gun. Uh, we are already getting it, to well, consequences. The reaction was, yeah. We can't let ourselves be killed, and uh, we will oppose the Shia. So the civil war broke out, and our oppressors, the ones who took everything from us and are 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 protecting uh, our enemies, are the Americans who shouldn't be here in any way. And so there was a uh, an insurgency very quickly broke out. Uh, there is no love, uh, no uh, nostalgia for uh, Saddam Hussein. But there was desperation and hostility towards uh, the Americans, and the insurgency. An insurgency is uh, it doesn't almost doesn't matter how powerful a military is. It isn't. It is uh, an almost insoluble uh, problem. And so the U.S. struggled with an insurgency for years. That's that's what all of the fighting in Iraq was. Yeah. It just was if I may, just if I may point out to our listeners. Even a small insurgency uh, in a relatively nearby land, such as, let's say, Northern Ireland, which is next door to England and Scotland, uh, was so difficult after the troubles broke out at the end of the uh, 1960s. And ultimately, the insurgency went away thanks to the Good Friday Agreement. So insurgencies, by their very nature, regardless of where they are, are difficult to handle, even when you're dealing with them in the West, even when you're dealing with them in, in a country with a lot of imperial experience, um, even when you have things like the SRR, the Special Reconnaissance Regiment, the 
SAS, the Special Airborne Service, the MI6, and so on and so forth. So for uh, the U.S. to face an insurgency far away in the desert sands of the Middle East was a formidable challenge. How, how could it be that this uh, occurred? Well, I explained partly why it occurred. More, more to the point. It, it also occurred how did the after American leaders perceived this. Yeah. It also occurred yeah. after yeah. World War One, Glenn. Uh, when Churchill uh, said, uh, you know, told his troops to use lively terror and drop more bombs in Iraq than in the entire World War I. So it's not that insurgency was new to Iraq. It, it had happened 80 right. years before. Right. And with the same result, that there was no, no way to stop the insurgency ultimately, really. Mm -hmm. Now, relevant is to, to the unfolding 20-year unfolding frankly disaster uh, for the united states in its policy was the the assessment the interpretation of what was going on by american leaders and this is the bush administration and so the intelligence community and the military and the state department respectively all agreed really that there was an insurgency going on i mean there clearly was every anyone could see this but when that was um, described to policymakers, uh, the response was, and this, this is specifically then Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, he said there is no insurgency. And the, the briefers from the CIA, from the military, and from the State Department, but it was really from the CIA, I, I know this, this is uh, somebody I know, said uh, he he pushed back and he said sir there's it's an insurgency and here's how we define insurgency and this is what it is and and uh, rumsfeld said there is no insurgency there are terrorists they are jihadists hmm. and the cia officer to his eternal credit but career destruction um said sir you may call it what you want but the fact is, it is an insurgency by every measure of what an insurgency is. And there was a tense, this was in the White House, and there was a, there was a tense silence because a, um, someone had dared to, who uh, dared to correct a member of the cabinet, you know, the Secretary of Defense. And after, you know, two heartbeats or so, uh, Rumsfeld said, you may use the term insurgency in this room only. Oh, Meaning for the public. How charming. Continue. The war would continue to be presented as uh, counter-terrorist uh, of, of jihadists. Now, the, another fact is this was presented, the jihadist threat in the presence of Al-Qaeda in Iraq was a justification for the invasion and a justification for the explanation of the insurgency uh, and, a, and a justification for the continued fighting there. And in fact, and this was my job um, to know, Al-Qaeda was not in Iraq until the U.S. invaded and the insurgency began, at which point Al-Qaeda said, well, here's a good place that we can kill Americans. And, <laughs> you know, the, inf the infidel has once again proven our point and gone to the holy, you know, holy lands, Muslim lands. And then Al-Qaeda did have a presence um, in, or in Iraq, but they were not central in any way. They were peripheral to the insurgency. The insurgency was for the reasons stated. 
There then came to be uh, an even more extreme Islamic terrorist group led by a man named Zarqawi, which was called, uh, I think he called himself, the names get fuzzy now, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or some sort of... Some Ayman, wasn't his name Ayman al-Zawahiri? Uh, Ayman al no, not Zawahiri, no, no, Zarqawi. Zarqawi, Zawahiri okay, is the number two for Al-Qaeda. Uh, Zarqawi was a ruthless... Oh, Abu Musa Zarqawi, if I remember correctly, Zarqawi. correct? He was Jordanian, actually. Uh-huh. And um, he was the most effective terrorist. Mm -hmm. He was. He he was. Uh, he liked to behead people and mm -hmm. uh, had a good sense of public relations of mm -hmm. you know how to popularize terror and so on. We eventually killed him. Um, I, actually, I yeah, have we, I have just uh, Googled, uh, much to my shame, which I don't normally do during our podcast, is the name of his organization, and it is Tanzim Kaidat Al Jihad. Fi Bilad Al Rafidan, which basically was known better as Al Qaeda in Iraq, AQI. So, and he uh, he basically uh, it, it took the Al Qaeda title Amir of Al Qaeda in the country of two rivers. Of the, of the three rivers, I think they say. Uh, I was, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, Al-Qaeda of the two or three rivers. Yeah. Yeah, it is, uh, Zarqawi, this man, was in sporadic contact with Al-Qaeda Central, with, with uh, Osama bin Laden. But the communications were not, I, the leader of Al-Qaeda, um, bin Laden, instruct you, my deputy, to go kill Americans in the following way. Rather, it was... Zarqawi saying, do you have any money? Um, bin Laden saying, we have no money. And bin Laden <laughs> saying, don't behead people because it's bad. It's, it's a bad look. And uh, that's not the way you should be fighting the fight right now. Kill Americans, but don't behead people. And Zarqawi essentially said, well, I'll do whatever I want. You can stuff it. Uh, and he was far more, frankly, extremist, killing not just the infidel American, uh, when possible, but anyone who disagreed with him at all, because everyone was an infidel. He was a sociopathic killer and a jihadist. So, enough of, of that horror. That went on for years. Although I will say, the life expectancy of a terrorist, of a jihadist in uh, Iraq, as the war progressed, uh, was one week. So that was not a, a good profession to select. He, he died in um, 2006, didn't he, Zarqawi? The, he, that sounds right. Yeah. I would have said five or six. I can't yeah. remember now, yeah. So, all right, I want to talk about some consequences. What all of this added up to, aside from the chaos of war and the horrors of war, all of which are important and real, what did, the, what did this do to America? You know, America's wars, fortunately for America, it generally fights someplace else. Yeah. So you've got two oceans. Afghanistan. Then you're very lucky. You've got two oceans. Yeah, very lucky. Insulating you know, Afghanistan you. and two Iraq are devastated. But the United States um, suffers um, usually minor, in relative terms, losses of uh, soldiers. Uh, although one death, of course, is one too many. Um, but th but that's all. But that is actually not correct as a way to look at this. The the uh, the effect of the, quote, war on terror uh, has been uh, profoundly corrosive. This will sound grandiloquent, but it is it is true. There's a direct line. Profoundly corrosive on American democracy 
itself. Uh, I wrote um, my book about my experiences in, um, involved in the the torture program, frankly, of the uh, U.S. government, which I uh, tried to oppose. So but hang on a I, moment. Point... Hang, hang on a minute. So uh, we are jumping the gun. So uh, you said that the right metric is not just to look, not only to look at the deaths uh, and the wounded and the a loss of blood and treasure, but also to look at the corrosive impact domestically of these wars. Definitely. And domestically, uh, one of the impacts of this war was a corrosion of American values. And, and, and you talked just now, you referred to the torture program. And the torture uh, program, in fact, contravenes international law and contravenes uh, American values because the U.S., uh, sentenced Japanese to death for torture. So the, right. the, the U.S. is doing precisely what it has uh, stood against, campaigned against, and legislated against. The, the completely, that's, that's absolutely right. So I think most everyone listening will know that the U.S. Um, uh, tortured some people during the um, Iraq war and the war on terror. Uh, but if not, extraordinary uh, rendition fact. was the was the operative term, wasn't there? And enhanced interrogation techniques. Well, extraordinary rendition led to enhanced, the circumstances yeah. that in which torture occurred. Yeah. But extraordinary rendition was initially to bring someone to the U.S. legal system. Yeah. Which is a, that's not a that's not a bad that's thing. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. But uh, but detaining someone in camera in secret forever uncharged and torturing them is a whole different series of of illegal uh, hideous acts and the united states did that now th that's an uh, another whole large subject uh, which we can discuss another time but the the order was from uh, the white house which is that officers like me would quote do whatever it took to get them to talk unquote that's a direct quote said to me um, and some of, and then it became codified uh, how one could do this. This being uh, interrogate uh, or torture. Uh, so that's bad. And as you said, a tool. It, it's illegal internationally. It's illegal in American terms. It's in the U.S. Constitution that torture is illegal. Cruel and unusual punishments are unconstitutional. Our most foundational law uh, it makes it illegal and on and on, but it happened. So what was the consequence? Well, here's one uh, data point that I think is telling. When you poll Americans 35 and above, should American officials, CIA officers, uh, torture uh, in the pursuit of American foreign policy or to protect America? A strong majority of Americans above 35 say absolutely not. Torture is un-American. It is illegal. No. You ask the same question of Americans 35 and below, and a strong majority of them say, CIA officers, guys like Carl, you got to do what you got to do. It's okay. There has been a, there is now a majority of Americans uh, who support torture. When I can tell you, and probably many of you who listen, will know from firsthand experience. It was 
culturally inconceivable prior to the attack of 9-11 in, in the year 2001 to have a, a theoretically rational, dispassionate discussion about should Americans torture. That was the stuff of the bad guys in B-movies in Hollywood. Of course, Americans would not torture. Now, were there excesses? Was there police brutality? Did the Chicago Police Department torture? Yes, 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 and yes. All that is true. But these things were, were clearly aberrant behavior running against the foundational uh, principles uh, and aspirational principles of the country. But that's no longer the case. One of the two major parties in the United States, the Republican Party, in its plank of position, position plank for the presidential elections of 2004, 8, 12, 16, and I, I, probably 20 also, formally advocated the use of torture as a, a, a policy of the United States. This is shocking. The Americans, just on that one point alone, uh, clearly have literally become something they no longer they they were never before a, a different coarser people point two consequence of the united states i wrote in my book and, and it didn't the focus in the readers and the reviewers and my critics and so on understandably enough was on my is my position on torture the issue was torture in the book yes however at the end i did say one of the consequences of this torture program was the corrosive effect on, on behavior and values of American officials and American society to the point where we were no longer, this is a literally true statement, we, the United States was no longer a government of law, but a government of men. The president said, do it. And many of my colleagues saluted and said, yes, sir, rather than what some of us said, that's against the law. It doesn't matter if the president orders that. He doesn't get to do that. It is, it is wrong. It is illegal. That's a profound change. And all of us in society, imagine the bell curve of, on, on any issue. On, but in this case, think of a bell curve of beliefs and what one imagines is acceptable behavior. And there will be people on one side of the bell curve and one on the other. Some will be fascists and some will be communists and some will be pacifists and some will be Moravians, you know, and so on. There's always the bell curve. But this bell curve of what has become acceptable and, and uh, unthinkingly conventionally accepted as a reference point and of acceptable uh, discourse or action has shifted to the right so that this kind of hideous behavior, un-American, illegal torture, uh, flaunting and, dis and ignoring the rule of law has become more acceptable in the United States. And you can argue, I think, Atul, you feel this way. Uh, certainly I, I do, that there is a, a clear line from the torture program, which is a, a uh, consequence of the erroneous perception of the threat from terrorism, of the war on terror, the erroneous framework that, that justified the war on terror, direct line to torture, to the corrosion of American values, laws, and practice, and political position, positions, and frankly, the erosion and endangerment of American democracy itself.
we had an insurrection, an attempted putsch on January 6th, which 45% of the American public denies occurred, although we saw it happen. Yeah, I, I was there on, on the grounds of Capitol Hill, and you very kindly edited the piece that I wrote immediately afterwards. Um, and one of the things that is interesting is that when you uh, start putting the means uh, above the ends, when the, when the means justify the ends, then bit by bit you lose uh, uh, that, uh, that moral underpinning, that uh, framework of values that has so far defined you. And in the case of uh, uh, the two decisions, the Afghanistan decision, the entire world was behind America. Um, Indians in particular were delighted. They thought that finally uh, there would be pressure on Pakistan, and there'd, there'd be pressure on Afghanistan, which was run by the Taliban and had actually uh, supported the terrorists who hijacked a plane in 1999 and landed it in Kandahar. So you had support from NATO, support from India, support from Russia, support from China. Everyone was behind uh, the US when it came to 2001. Mm -hmm. And uh, from what you told us last time, America almost immediately uh, got distracted and started gunning for Iraq. And when it came to Iraq, Iraq is something that uh, India at that time run by a BJP government, which was uh, was uh, led by Atal Bihari Vajpayee, basically a very um, mild, center-right um, government, very sympathetic to the U.S., because remember, they had grown up uh, during the Cold War and didn't like the Soviet Union. And even the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party government of Atal Bihari Vajpayee and the foreign minister was Jaswan Singh, whom I knew well, uh, were very uncomfortable with the Iraq war. They thought there wasn't justification for going to war against Iraq. I was at Oxford then, and the Germans, the French, uh, the Europeans were very, very, very uncomfortable. And of course, we remember speeches by Chirac and Schroeder and others from that time. And America's um, uh, loss, of, uh, uh, loss of reputation, which you think is temporary, but nevertheless, that act itself uh, certainly uh, discredited it. And, and what ensued afterwards and the revelations that ensued afterwards about using torture, uh, photographs, at Abu Ghraib gradually, I think, coarsened America internally and, and, and uh, uh, left a black stain on its reputation abroad. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, another data point on the consequences of torture, and then there are many other consequences which I want to get to. Yeah. You know, I know my colleagues um, to be men and women of principle. They're, they're um, highly educated, deeply committed to serving the nation, deeply committed to our constitution, to the rule of law, to democracy. They're principled people. But when the, the order came uh, to, uh, to torture, I saw half, uh, half of my colleagues reasoned the following way. It was a visceral response. Um, we're, we are um, 
the endangered party, the bad guys are coming to kill us. We know they have. They killed 3,000 of us just a month ago or whatever it was. Um, and uh, our president is, uh, will, and our government is here, we are here to defend us all. Uh, and the order is to do this. We're by definition the good guys. Therefore, it's okay. And they, they raised their hands and saluted. And, and for many, that was it. End of end of thought. Uh, and the unthinkable became the real. Uh, uh, torture became American. And our laws and our principles collapsed. Uh, it, it is as dramatic this is, and this instantaneous is a, as that. Yeah, this is a familiar tale, isn't it? It has happened time and again that many men of principle... Uh, when it comes to uh, national interest or perceived national interest. It may actually be against their long-term national interest, but when they perceive a threat, they act in a certain way which is fundamentally against some of their most fundamental values. Uh, let's go back to Iraq and the 1920s. What the British did then uh, was fundamentally unprincipled, but a lot of British officers were deeply principled people. Many of them were devout Christians. Many of them uh, were loving fathers, doting husbands, uh, dutiful sons. And yet, uh, in the words of one of uh, the British officers, uh, you know, when writing about his junior, you know, the, uh, their finger never wavered on the trigger. Yeah. So this is something which we've seen in human history done by many, many, many countries before. These are principled men and women acting sincerely. You know, even yeah. the, the, the Gauleiters, the, the, the guards at the death camps for the Nazis uh, tussled the yeah. hair of their kids and went, took them to Sunday school and, and helped their wives grow flowers and, and sing, uh, uh, sing in the choir at church. Uh, they're, they're, they were um, honorable people, except that they were mass murderers. Yeah. Uh, and they did I mean, so let's go back to the Thirty Years' War, which has led to the modern-day international states-based order, um, 1618 to 1648. Uh, Gustavus Adolphus was a principled man. He was a great military commander. He was also massacring Catholics. The Catholics were principled too, even though they were massacring Protestants. So this is not new. This is not new to the human story. No, not at all. Not at all. It's just we, America is not exceptional. We are human like everyone else and uh, is deeply principled and flawed and vicious as, uh, as anyone else. So <laughs> so our democracy has, has grievously suffered and lastingly suffered to where uh, you know, America does face existential challenges from home now, which it has not since, uh, as I've argued as loudly as I can for years and years, uh, not since 1861 has there been a crisis as as grave, and it's not only because of torture and the war on terror, but uh, it was at the very least a significant contributing factor to the spiral uh, towards crisis. There's a more material problem uh, or consequence too. The U.S. spent I used to know the figure, not quite to the penny, but quite precisely. Um, but this will be slightly off, but but generally correct. Uh, the U.S. spent on its military and intelligence and, and all sorts of other attendant expenses, $8 trillion um, on, the, on the war on terror. That includes Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan. 
and as I said, you know, it was my job to know how big Al Qaeda was and how big was it? As I four to six hundred people. There were probably several thousand. No, not probably. There were are uh, several thousand jihadists worldwide. Any one of them needs to be stopped. Every one of them needs to be stopped. Uh, giving yourself the authority to kill others is you know, will will mean the end of any organized society. Um, but you don't need all of the resources, civil society, military resources uh, of the most powerful country on earth, plus many of the resources of most other countries on earth, devoted to several thousand people. Now, all, each terrorist attack is hideous. Uh, the suffering is real. I am not minimizing this. Uh, but there, you can have dedicated professional counterterrorism officials who should be hunting these people in silence and eliminating them in the dark or bringing them to trial um, without glorifying them uh, rather than devoting all the resources and all of the attention of 330 million people for 20 years. So it was a major distraction and America stopped keeping its eye on the ball and 2001 is when China enters the World Trade Organization, the WTO. So there's an argument many people make, including you, that for 20 years, America neglected to tackle Russia and China as it should have. Well, look at let's just take the military uh, structure and doctrine, two important things related but not identical, okay. of the United States uh, as, as a proof of, the, of this or an example of the statement yeah. you just made. When the Cold War ended in 1989 and, and up to the year 2000, 2001, when the World Trade Center was attacked, the U.S. was haltingly but significantly uh, redefining um, uh, its military structure, how it would fight wars, uh, and its training and its procurement. But all of that really was frozen after the uh, World Trade Center attack, because for 15 years, the United States engaged in counterinsurgency, uh, two wars, but relatively minor, um, minor issues. And the doctrine remained uh, focused on counterterrorism. And yeah. one I mean, I, I did counterinsurgency as a young officer, and that's a very different proposition to fighting a full-scale war. Uh, completely, I mean, apples and oranges, because basically you are fighting guerrillas and a lot of counterinsurgency is really going native, building local faith, local support. It's a totally different kettle of fish to going to Ukraine. Or preparing for um, a great power, uh, one hopes war, but competition with yeah. a peer uh, rival. And the United mm -hmm. States has not has had one peer rival, was the Soviet Union, and now has one that that is an exponentially more um, uh, challenging than the Soviet Union ever was, which is China. Um, but for twenty years, almost um, adjusting military procurement, doctrine, training uh, was frozen because we had a hundred thousand soldiers in Afghanistan and and several hundred thousand in uh, Iraq at different times. 
and uh, the procurement was uh, designed to support those efforts and the war on terror, which is, uh, as you described it accurately, a whole whole different thing. All of that was frozen. That's part of the reason, one of the reasons why I so strongly supported President Biden's decision. He finally cut the Gordian knot and removed us from Afghanistan, which is a whole other issue we could, uh, will do my best not to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's right not now. go into that because right. uh, for now, because we are focusing on something else. Right. But it does and the withdrawal in Afghanistan yeah. was, was not exactly uh, done in the best way or at the right time, done in the middle of fighting season. We, we, you know, we can disagree as to that. But yes, he did withdraw and, uh, you know, America which is out of Afghanistan. Which, which allows by the way, America finally to redefine, redesign its military and its doctrines. Yeah. Uh, which, which, by the way, uh, people like Rory Stewart, uh, the MI6, or re reportedly MI6 chap who ran for prime minister, uh, opposed. And, and their argument was, well, it was a relatively minor expense and uh, America could have sustained it. And Bagram is close to Western China. So the Bagram airfield was strategically important. But, you know, that's a difference uh, of opinion. And you're on the other side of that argument. Yeah. I'd just like to, to point that out to our listeners. Sure. So whether this is the right, that was the right decision or not, the another consequence um, has been for 20 years, the progressive militarization of the United States intelligence community for for all of the quote war, global war on terror. The primary mission for the CIA and, and other U.S. intelligence uh, agencies was to support uh, counterterrorism operations, and many of them became joint special forces CIA operations. And that, and some of the that that's an important function, but the C, the CIA is an intelligence organization, not a paramilitary organization. The paramilitary branch of the CIA grew and grew and grew not only in size, but also in influence and has and in how the attitudes and the focus and the perceived mission of the US intelligence community uh, is in house. And and I think I lament that I, I love the military, I respect the military. Uh, I always enjoyed working uh, with the, the various parts of it. Uh, but it's it's a, a significant error. Uh, and will cause harm to U.S. national interests that, that the CIA become uh, in the intelligence community too military-centric. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. one consequence. Also... And General David Petraeus ended up uh, becoming uh, the head of the CIA. So that perhaps marks the high watermark of the militarization of the CIA in some ways, at least in perception, if not in reality. Well, and, you know, and he's a highly talented uh, man. Uh, he's, yeah, he's been uh, he's been on our YouTube yeah. channel. Actually, he's interviewed with us, and yeah. I've enjoyed every conversation with him. He's a bright chap. Yeah, he's he's hardly, unfortunately, I would argue. But I'm a classic CIA officer. That uh, he he's not at all the first uh, uniformed officer to lead the CIA. There have been uh, many, but most professional intelligence officers uh, think that that is unwise. Uh, whatever their individual merits, and, and his are great. Uh, it's as was um, uh, General Hayden, from the, for whom I worked, who I think of whom I think also very highly. But uh, it, it's a different framework, a different mission, and to have the uh, CIA 
become a, a, a supporting branch of military uh, operations and focus is is not not wise, and that certainly happened. There's also been a shift in the culture within the intelligence community. And this is something I one cannot quantify, but I know what my um, peers were like and what the culture was like. And you had everything. Every America was well represented uh, in the CIA. You had everyone from um, a neo-Nazi to um, someone just shy of Marxists. I'm not aware of any Marxists who would openly avow themselves as such in the CIA at the time, uh, but probably there were. You had a broad range, and it was it was basically a centrist internationalist uh, culture. That has shifted to the right. That The bell curve of which I spoke has again shifted to the right, where iconoclasts um, are uh, less welcomed because to challenge orthodoxy means, well, are you not with the program in the counterterrorism war? And the answer would be no, in which case you're on the outs. Um, and that's that's uh, a negative consequence of, of so substance. Quickly, to summarize, uh, the consequence has been a weakening of uh, U.S. intelligence and um, a weakening of uh, U.S. institutions. That is your fundamental argument. Certainly of the institutions, uh, I don't know if we would say weakening of intelligence, but I would say distortion of its uh, culture and its mission. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which would eventually weaken it, because the whole point yes, of intelligence definitely. is to be able to identify the right threats and come up with the right strategies to counter them. Yes, I think, that's, I think that is correct, yeah. So that's just All the right. domestic, some of the domestic consequences. The international ones are sort of easier to see. Um, uh, Afghanistan was, you know, arguably a success for 20 years, but the only way to con keep it a relative success would have been to stay there indefinitely. And was it a, and, he, and here one good, you know, um, what uh, principled, uh, rational uh, people can disagree. Um, was Afghanistan a vital interest of the U.S.? And in my view, no. And other people say, well, maybe not, but the cost was low. I mean, that one can argue about, but but certainly Ira uh, Afghanistan um, continued its suffering for a long uh, time. But really, the, the egregious uh, harm was done in uh, the Middle East with the invasion of Iraq. Iraq was destroyed. Part of our objective, we, we've only touched elusively upon it, was uh, in invading was to check Iran. You know, it's sort of ironic you invade Iraq to stop the Iranian expansion and influence. But, um, but that was part of the larger equation. And the consequence really was instantaneously to extend the influence of Tehran from the Iran-Iraq border to the Tigris-Euphrates River, uh, at the very least. Um, and that is the exact opposite of what the U.S. would like to have had happen. You have a grievously suffering Iraqi society with hundreds of thousands of people killed, only now uh, struggling to come out. You had a loss economically. The losses were catastrophic for them and for, for the world as a whole. And then... You know, Syria has collapsed also and undergone a, a hideous uh, civil war. What, what war is not hideous, but a, an incredibly complicated civil war where there is no faction that one could really support or no faction that had a chance of of winning that was um, one would wish to support. And uh, you had, Glenn, the just hang on a minute. Hang on. 
hang on a minute, let's explain to our viewers, uh, to our listeners, uh, the significance of um, uh, Iraq. Uh, part of the reason, as we explained in our last episode, to go into Iraq was, of course, one was to kick out Saddam, one was to stop WMD, one was to, of course, uh, snuff out terror, but one was also to send a signal to Iran. And uh, Iran and Iraq had fought an eight-year war from 1980 to 1988, which was absolutely awful. Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons. Iran sacrificed thousands of young boys uh, to to hold uh, Iraq to a standstill. And and Iranians uh, used fourteen-year-old boys to yeah. um, as minesweepers. They would they exactly. would mass them and send them in, uh, to attack Iraqi lines. The the express purpose being that they would get themselves blown up, and that would clear yeah. the minefields. And they did, but at tremendous human cost. Uh, but once Saddam goes, the mortal enemy of uh, Iran disappears. And Iran had a revolution in 1979. It is uh, a country ruled by mullahs. And it is the dominant Shia power. And about 10% of the Muslim population globally is Shia. And they have cultural inclinations towards Iran. And uh, Iran suddenly became the backer of Shia militias in Iraq from Muqtadar al-Sadr and others, the Sadr brigades. And of course, Glenn would know much more about all of this because he served in the CIA. But also remember that uh, Bashar al-Assad is an Alevi, and so he is Shia. So Iran's um, influence extended from um, southern Iraq uh, to Syria and to Lebanon, to Hezbollah, which is also one of the uh, organizations uh, backed by Iran. So the fall of Saddam really strengthened Iran's hand. And because Iran became uh, more and more powerful, it made Saudi Arabia more and more nervous and the Gulf Sunni states more and more nervous. Mm -hmm. So you, you've had this um, uh, historic Shia-Sunni rivalry. And of course, uh, this rivalry between a revolutionary power that overthrew a ruler, a Shah, versus uh, hereditary sheikdoms coming into place. So the consequence, uh, the ramifications of the Iran-Iraq war, sorry, of the uh, 2003 Iraq war are manifold. Yeah, absolutely. And, and other point, I, the, another objective in the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq was to provide um, definitive security for Israel. Uh, Saddam is the most powerful uh, military, the most aggressive military in the Arab Muslim world. Eliminating him would provide strategic, lasting security for Israel. However, what happened was the um, in the invasion, the Iranians saw a good opportunity to kill Americans and, the, and to create problems for us by bogging us down. So they um, were arming the Shia factions of Iran, uh, no, no, of Iraq, and uh using their proxy hezbollah which is a lebanese shia fact group with a, a an effective army um and intelligence service to uh, support a state within a state some would say in lebanon yes. you oh, yes, said yes. it i believe yeah uh, to um, support the insurgency in as well iraq against the united states None of which serves Israel's interests uh, either, which was that all makes it worse by strengthening Hezbollah, by strengthening the Shia, by creating chaos on Israel's borders, and 
one of there are two main reasons that Syria then imploded into a, a, a grotesque, uh, endless civil war. And I, I, um, Assad, I don't think he's quite Shia. He's it's Shia-ish, but a, a very yeah. small uh, sect, sect in yeah, yeah. in uh, Islam. Uh, but they are the Alevis. He's yeah. he's an Alevis, and they exist in Turkey. They exist uh, in Iraq, but, and they exist in Syria. And they uh, basically um, uh, they supposedly follow the um, teachings of Haji Bektash Veli, mm -hmm. and uh, they they I mean they they are loosely. You're right. You, you can they they are in a way like universalists, but they. Yeah, they 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 are um, uh, more inclined towards uh, uh, the Shias than the Sunnis because a lot of the hardline Sunnis, of course, consider them as apostates. And, yeah, well, and, and the Islamic the state Sunni certainly wanted. Sure. Yeah, yeah, they're more like the Islamic state certainly yeah. wanted the Assad uh, dynasty out. Yeah, but the the important point here is that two things happened that were terrible for everyone: for Syrians, for Israelis, for Iraqis, for Americans. Um, maybe good only for the Iranians in Tehran, which is the um, the U.S. invaded Iraq, destabilized Iraq, which then created um, tremendous uh, stress on Syria, the neighboring uh, country, uh, in refugees, in uh, people, in volunteers transiting through to fight the Americans, in resource uh, strain, and so on. And at the same time, by complete coincidence, uh, there was a series of, uh, not a series, there was a prolonged drought uh, exacerbated, if not directly caused, uh, and this is not an assertion, this is a fact, by global warming. And so what happened in Syria is that the farmers could not earn a living. They, they couldn't grow enough uh, produce to, uh, to maintain their farms or to feed their people. And so you had many people fleeing the country into the into the cities, into Damascus, from uh, from the countryside in Syria, and the state didn't have the means to sustain to support such a strain on its civil society and on its infrastructure, on its on its economy, and uh, that happened just at the time of the strains from the Iraq War, and as a result, the uh, and, and Syria is a, a concatenation, a, a grouping of disparate uh, religious uh, sects uh, who were, uh, ironically, only kept uh, relatively at peace by the one faction that protected them, which was the um, Assad's uh, faction, which ruthlessly ruled. And, yeah. and, but otherwise, by the way, they were also Baathists. Uh, they were also yes. Baathist socialists. And uh, just like Saddam, here the Assad family, I, I remember I used to fly through Syria, believe it or not, um, Glenn, because Syrian Arab Airlines uh, back in the day when I was at Oxford offered the cheapest ticket. So I, I, I and I would <laughs> land, uh, uh, land in Damascus and everywhere you had photos of Papa Assad and baby Assad, you know, everywhere. It was basically just like uh, Iraq. It was... Uh, ruled by a Thuggish family, and um, they ruled uh, with an iron fist, and they had massacred uh, rebels who dared to raise their heads yeah. many times in the past. Uh, and, and, most, yeah. Yeah, and, and most people thought that the son, who 
actually is a doctor by training, a medical doctor by training, would not have it in him to bring the country to order. Now, clearly, he's uh, proved people wrong. He's proved to be as brutal as his father. Uh, And of course, he's had help of the Iranians and the Russians. And uh, he's now back to all the Arab summits. So it's very interesting how things have transpired. The the country collapsed because the jihadists were empowered. They were motivated to go kill Americans and to take over Iraq. And while they're at it, the uh, Assad regime was also an apostate, uh, you know, uh, regime, and so we will get rid of that problem at home too. If you're a Syrian uh, jihadist, and the various, uh, then the the Sunni and the Shia started to be um, at each other's uh, throats, no longer able to be restrained by the government, which was overwhelmed by these uh, economic, social, meteorologically uh, induced strains, also. And the country collapsed, Uh, but it's a a consequence of the invasion of Iraq. It it may have happened without that, but but certainly a big contributing factor was the invasion of Iraq. Now, our listeners, uh, those those who are younger should know that these lines on the map, the formation of Iraq, the formation of Syria, the formation of Lebanon, Jordan, uh, were all done through a Sykes-Picot agreement. Mr. Sykes and Monsieur Pico won uh, an, uh, an imperial Englishman and the other um, an imperial Frenchman during the course of the World War I agreed to divvy up the Ottoman Empire, the declining Ottoman Empire. Because the Ottomans that controlled all of the what Middle we East. now call the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. And the Ottoman Empire was for long the sick man of Europe, the Ottomans even controlled South modern-day uh, Arabian Peninsula, uh, and Saudi Arabia was then yet unborn. And it is here that Lawrence of Arabia carried out a bl- an insurgency under the blazing sun, glamorized, glamorized of course, in Hollywood. Uh, and um, it is, he- it is um, in these parts that various promises uh, were made. The British made promises of uh, self-determination to the Arabs. They also promised the Jews uh, a homeland. And uh, they couldn't um, by any way um, keep promises to everyone. And all these states, all these borders were just drawn up and they are a mishmash of very many communities. And they have papered over the fault lines that go back centuries, if not decades. And the structure of the modern state system is very different to the Ottoman state, Ottoman system, which basically meant that the local notables of Aleppo ruled uh, sort of autonomously and, and the local notables of Damascus ruled autonomously. And when the French brought in their centralized model of, uh, of governance, the person who controlled Damascus had absolute power. And so the fight for the control of the capital became far more savage and far more brutal. And the person who controlled the capital also had access to the colonial and then post-colonial state. And uh, ipso facto, it became a winner's take all society. And these borders uh, were going to be under strain at some point anyway, but the Iraq war really hits the Sykes-Picot order created at the end or created, yes, exactly at the end of World War One, hard. So Humpty yeah, so, Dumpty so has fallen has been, off the wall. 
what has been what has passed for uh, order, and I use the word advisedly, in the Middle yeah. East is, as you have said, Atul, the, the structure imposed, created by the uh, colonial powers 100 years ago, which is the Iraq invasion, has pretty well destroyed, um, so, uh, which is an historic consequence. I'd like to get to the last two points, I think, and, and I'll, I'll allude to one of my favorite writers, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, uh, and one of his famous stories talks about, well, how did Holmes solve the case? And he solved the case because he realized that there was the dog that didn't bark. Why did the dog not bark if an intruder came in and murdered someone where the dog was the guard dog? Because um, it was an insider. But the point yeah. here is... I remember what, that story. It's a great what story. Didn't, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What, what didn't happen reveals the important points. So I've talked about, we talked about how the Middle East is cracking up as, in part as a result of, in part, not only, uh, as a result of the American invasion of Iraq, which was itself erroneously based on um, incorrect ass assessments of the terrorist threat, et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about all of that. Two things we haven't talked about, uh, or three, three. One is China, the other is cyber uh, issues, and the third is domestic, American domestic extremism. For I know for a fact, because I was involved in these assessments, every year the intelligence community, which includes the FBI, uh, has to assess threats to the United States, and, and we try to rank them. The greatest threat is X, Y, and Z in this order. Um, every year that I was involved, and I know for a fact before I was involved and after I no longer was involved, the assessment was the greatest threat to American domestic security are U.S. domestic uh, extremists, which meant two things. Um, uh, environmental terrorists who at that time, 20 years ago, had actually destroyed more property than any other um, actor in the United States. So those are the extremists on the left? On the left. They blew yeah. up. Uh, power lines and and uh, utility uh, uh, exchanges and things like that. Yeah, um, and some of them now probably are manifested in the new uh, woke extremism, the the vehemence when it comes to language, this insistence that gender is just a construct. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know about yeah. that. But there were there were a very small number of militants uh, who blew up power lines and uh, set forests, uh, set park ranger stations on fire and things like this. But the mm -hmm. real threat uh, was from right wing militias, from neo-Nazi American white supremacist militia racists. Uh, and every year they were the top threats assessed. But... But the Bush administration forbid the intelligence community to say that and said, no, you will say that it is Islamic terrorists. And we were obliged to change our assessment because it didn't fit with their view. And they thought that to, to uh, castigate or to, to designate uh, the right-wing militia as a threat would sully them the the Republican Party too because they're they were on the right, and that's frankly outrageous. 
but that is one thing that has continued to happen. And we now see the consequences when um, the head of one of these factions was just sentenced to 18 years in prison for trying to overthrow the government of the United States. And they go around shooting federal officers, literally, and will do more if they're allowed to do it. And they have been told to stand back and stand by by the then president of the United States. But we were forbidden to, uh, and the FBI in particular, because it's, it's really their issue, domestic law enforcement, from taking as the steps that they uh, indicated were necessary to take to parry or to try to parry this rising threat. That was one consequence of the war on terror, largely unknown, but hugely significant. Point two, I know for a fact the head of the CIA and the intelligence community in two th the year 2000 and 2001 was trying to focus the intelligence community on the rising threat of cyber issues, whether it be cyber terrorism or cyber attack by hostile parties, whether an individual or a state. It's a, it's and that's a where Russia problem. has played a big role, as uh, Absolutely. You've, been, you've been quite vocal about it. Absolutely. Um, and that focus was um, obliged to take a second a back seat to the focus on the war on terror. Um, and that's that's also a harm. I'm not saying we could have solved the problem. Uh, when I was uh, tangentially involved in this, the answer was that there was no solution. Um, but that doesn't mean you stop trying. Uh, mm. to to uh, address what is a, a, a potentially existential issue. And the other two were, we also said, what is the greatest existential threat to the, to the United States? And even 20 years ago, when I was involved, the issue, the answer was global warming. The facts are, were overwhelming decades ago. And we again were forbidden to focus on that because that was viewed as a, a, a position that came out of the Democratic Party. And that's outrageous. Now, now, now you know, we've gone past the hour mark yet again, but uh, you mentioned China, and let's close on China. China has right. been the subject of previous episodes. Exactly. We've done one on Taiwan. We've done one on China challenging the rules-based order. And 2001 is the year of 9-11. And as I keep saying repeatedly, China entering the WTO. So what happened when it came to the China front? Well, you're, you're right to raise it. That's, that is the last point I would make, and perhaps it's the most important, certainly it should be the one most in our thoughts now, is that as early as 2000, well, before 2001, but certainly in 2001, the intelligence community, the United States foreign policy establishment, clearly was aware that the rise of China was the great challenge of the 21st century. It would be. Um, and it, the rise has been far greater and faster than we had even assessed at the time. And at the time, we assessed it as the greatest challenge that we had to address. But we were diverted. We, the United States, were diverted from our attention on that largely because we had to maintain the strategic doctrines, the procurement and the operations uh, in uh, to conduct the, quote, war on terror, rather than to do what Hillary Clinton kept trying to talk about, which was the, uh, and, and uh, Barack Obama, the um, pivot to the uh, Pacific. Asia pivot. Asia pivot, um, which would have meant literally 
uh, shipping the the navy into the Pacific more, which has largely happened now, uh, but uh, sooner and greater the changes in doctrine, changes in in uh, training, uh, great focus on uh, alliances, so on. President Obama, to his credit, did attempt to do this in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a tremendously um, ambitious, strategic, historic uh, effort to um, to counterbalance the rise of China and to perennialize the uh, normative rules order uh, system for trade and and commerce was uh, torpedoed and literally on President Trump's first day in office because conservatives uh, don't like trade agreements. Well, that's ironic because uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was uh, ambassador to China. He was uh, director of the CIA. He was shot down over the Pacific as a fighter pilot, and he very much was a free trade man. He very ably handled the end of the Cold War. I think he is hugely underrated, as uh, do you. And, and so, it's not always. It has not always been the case that Republicans have been against free trade agreements. Well, and yes, actually, this is one of the, the TPP, of history. the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, was very much. Uh, a George Herbert Walker Bush strategy, free trade, uh, and, and something that he would have greatly approved. Re- Republicans have historically been free traders, and Democrats yeah. uh, isolationists have been protectionists. Uh, protectionists, rather. Yeah. So, um, in a way, Donald Trump uh, managed a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, and the party has uh, abandoned many of its strategic roots. Yeah, well, there has always been a strong isolationist faction in the Republican Party, yeah. uh, which um, slips all the way over to these right-wing militias that I've been talking about and white yeah. supremacists. Uh, but they were um, controlled by the establishment uh, mm. wing of the Republican Party, which were, was the main line, the uh, ruling elite from the northeast of the United States, where, where my heritage comes out of. Yeah, uh, your, the, your family was Republican as well. Yeah, they were internationalist yeah. Republicans because uh, yes. the they were the the internationalist Republicans from 120 years ago were the progressives, yeah. but that's 120 years ago. Yeah. And the Republican Party that, was also was also the party of Abraham Lincoln that abolished slavery. So it's yes, very interesting yeah. how things have transpired. Yeah, well, the progressives have all been forced out, and it's that's not from the war on terror, really, that, that that all started decades before the war on terror. And uh, However, the uh, the rise of the uh, militaristic isolationist faction to dominate the Republican, and frankly, fascistic faction of the Republican Party to dominate the party and define it now, uh, is in part a consequence of the war on terror. And, and thus, um, China's rise was not really focused on in the way uh, international professionals in the uh, national security establishment wished to do, and, and politicians also, twenty five starting 25 years ago. And that's partly a consequence of the war on terror also, so that we find ourselves now with a, a peer that we were only in, in the last several years um, uh, addressing with the attention that it deserves. Excellent. So we've covered a lot of grounds, and uh, what uh, comes through is that there were phenomenal domestic implications of these decisions of 2001 and 2003. It led to a weakening of America's 
institutions, it led to a coarsening of public life, and it led to a corrosion of American values. Uh, that is uh, the domestic uh, front on the international front. There were many implications, uh, in particular for the Middle East, and uh, also in terms of neglecting the rise of China and uh, taking the eye, taking the American eye off uh, the ball when it came to the real threats that could come from hostile big state um, actors such as Russia and China, and of course other longer term strategic and perhaps even existential issues. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Glenn, for your time. This has been very enlightening. And we will be back very soon and discuss something different, and that will be the totalitarianism, the new totalitarianism uh, of the left, uh, which is uh, sweeping across the world. We've talked about the threat of the right uh, extensively in the past. Now we'll talk about the threat of the left. Uh, so stay tuned uh, from both of us. It is bye for now. See you later.